All right, welcome to episode 21 of Trade Secrets. We are excited to welcome our guest, Carl Kubik, today. Carl is the principal of Workscape. Um, yes, it is written down, sorry. Um, don't want to make any mistakes, but we are pumped. Uh, we've been off for about a month, just kind of recharging the batteries, but we're excited to start a good stretch of guests here on the show. And welcome, Carl. We're pumped to have you here. You brought gifts. First time, yeah. long time. Yeah. The first um, guest to bring us swag. Yeah. Very and the first guest that has a background in DJ universe. Yeah. So I'm really bummed. So Kevin was also a college DJ. Mm. When we found out that you were an MC as well, we were really hoping to find out like you're, like that we would have like a DJ We're not going to have a DJ off. For like a, for the record, people who might know me are going to be watching, listening to this. I was never a DJ. This is all incorrect. I was a color commentator on sports radio. Same so difference. I, uh, oh. Yeah, so. oh, that's so much better. Yeah, it's better. And I used to travel with BC basketball and football teams uh, to a variety of towns. Blacksburg's the worst place to go in the ACC uh, for those scoring at home. I'll be Why? Uh, it's just a little bleak. Uh, as like much more as I, bleak than here? Well, we're all in Appalachia. I would say Blacksburg's like the eastern tip of the Appalachian area. Atlanta's probably the total south. Oops. Okay. Um, but long story short is there just isn't much. They pelted B- like a 500 BC team with fruit uh, on some random game that I uh, emceed or announced. I, I could, or announced you, the, I could give you the reason. <laughs> yeah, we probably were Yankees that were... Uh, no, at the time, that's when you were leaving the Big East. You were one of the groups that started it. It's true. They came with us, though. You weren't even an ACC team at the time. But Virginia Tech was also in the. They also committed. I hold a grudge. I do. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Michael holding a grudge about something. Good thing we had that pep talk before we started filming about not going down any rabbit (laughs) hole. Well, we're going to go down a rabbit hole to start because uh, the the current event, as you guys know. Should we uh, address the swag? We do. Right. So each of these gifts is bespoke to a fellow member of this uh, table. I'll let you all open at once. But I just want you to know that they're each unique. Okay. First. I'm kind of nervous. I'm kind of excited. I got tissue paper. <laughs> oh, boy. That was quite a lot. Oh, please. Oh, there it is. Gosh. Please. There it is. Oh, she's scared. For Mike, oh. Paige gets one of our newest uh, soft oh tea swags. This is hysterical. This is Mike, I got a bill. <laughs> Kevin's got an invoice. <laughs> Paige is I awesome. I think I sure. win. I think right? I win. He seems pretty happy. Yeah, There's one I don't clear loser. So. Paid, I don't think so. What does it take uh, America back? Uh, it fits. <laughs> it fits. Right there. It fits in oh, physically and because what I want to do is sidetrack us into political discourse. Well, that's always start. The yeah. the well, okay. Matt. And the great water bottle? Yeah, and the water bottle. Awesome. So Workscape, which we'll eventually get to, is moving to a new location in the south side that we're very excited. We're getting occupancy tomorrow. Um, so this is a very big time for us. That's really that's exciting. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so yeah, much. Thank you oh, so you're so welcome. You're not going to keep the hat. you got to at least put the hat so it stays on okay, the screen. Okay, yeah. Well, I didn't oh, want oh, to yeah. trigger... <laughs> Anybody sitting at this table? Well, so I'd just like to say the, that in no way expresses the views and sentiments of the the large population of this table. 
or well, maybe. maybe maybe just me just maybe. me pretty much uh, <laughs> my my theory and everything political we could go from here is Republicans and Democrats both by office furniture so we we welcome you both into the Workscape family very true great right. to be and there you know thank else? you so 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 much <laughs> yeah thank you so much but you know who else probably bought a ton of office furniture it was this this bank out on the west coast this mm. is the the topic of the day the current event SV B, um, Silicon Valley Bank, has made a lot of headlines recently. And, you know, obviously we could spend an entire episode talking about it, but I think for purposes of keeping it brief, there's three theories about what happened, and I'm just curious what everybody thinks. So for those of you who are listening who don't know, wake up and pay attention to what's going on in the universe of finance. Um, but uh, SVB uh, failed two weeks ago. The Federal Reserve and our great country has bailed them out. We won't get into whether that's right, wrong, or indifferent. But um, the three theories are that Trump's rollback of the Dodd-Frank rules um, was part of the problem or the problem. And effectively, that's banks that were over $50 billion in assets uh, had to have a lot of government or control. He rolled it back to 250 and they were at 220 when they failed. So there's some theory about were they getting... Uh, governmental governmental oversight enough. Um, they also went eight months without a chief risk officer, which has a lot of people wondering, how does a bank with $200 billion of assets not have a CRO for eight months? And then the theory that social media in the new age that we're in today, where when fear sparks, fire burns really, really fast um, for the run on the bank to pull your assets out. So thoughts from the group well and to be i mean it's not just svb then we had signature a couple days later and now credit swiss uh i don't think they failed but massive devaluation and just got acquired by i forget who acquired them yeah Uh, i mean just here in pittsburgh uh, the three banks the three largest banks have lost 13 billion in value in two weeks weeks. yeah so um not an expert at any of this um but hearing all this, and, and even like when they, people talk about the stock market, and it's like for me, it's like this is all just a wild game of like perception becomes reality, and like the the Twitter fires that start, and the very real, very serious consequences that that has. I, that's what I find the most fascinating about this. That's I one mean, of the theories I, that it's right. I mean, obviously from what I've read about SVB, where they diversified in a responsible way. Doesn't sound like it. Um, but that's about the extent of my... <laughs> hey, my it's keeping it real. How about you? Oh, I, I don't buy into any of your theories, okay. by the way. I so you're on they, theory number four. No, I don't think I don't think the, the, the Trump uh, change to the uh, regulations was a bad thing. I think that uh, having the same kind of scrutiny for small community banks is an incredible detriment to small communities because it makes it too restrictive for them to lend. So right. lightening those restrictions was a great thing. Um, I think that larger banks, because they can do such damage uh, if, if anything happens, that there probably should be a little bit more control over there. But you reach this bridge between a small bank and a large bank where a small bank can't jump to become a large bank because of all the costs that are associated with uh, compliance. And that's what the CEO of Silicon Valley argued. Correct. Right. Okay, and that's uh, an issue there. But the uh, 
there's so many moving parts to the Silicon Valley thing. I think that they completely, their entire uh, debt portfolio was off, off kilter. They had loans, not loans, they, they had, they didn't have enough deposits or the value of their deposits to cover the, their loans. They had huge amount of deposits, but they had a huge amount of debt that they, they had. So there's, I don't exactly understand the whole mechanics of valuing a bank, but you have to keep X amount of assets, and the assets that they had in place did not support the portfolio of debt that they have. Right. So okay, about, how about you, Carl? Debt, it's called an asset. What's your take on well, the I worked at a crisis bank, that's happening right now? I've worked at a bank, and I'm on my fifth sip of bourbon, so <laughs> I'm actually an expert at this now. No, um, <laughs> so my understanding is twofold. So there was durational risk. So a bank like SVB lends to startups. A lot of the startups, there's not heavy assets to lend against. So right. like you're not buying machines. You're not buying big, in many cases, plans, big buildings. They don't have, yeah. There's no CapEx, but people kept shoving money at tech firms. I mean, it was a white-hot market. My understanding, though, was a lot of that money would just go into the bank, i.e. Silicon Valley Bank, which did an awesome job of marketing itself uh, to startups. But basically, my understanding was SVB then kind of put a lot of this into long-duration long treasury months. notes. Yeah. But the issue is, is what were they doing that was kind of sneaky? And what, what did the Trump do? Trump tax laws do that made this extra sneaky? Well, my understanding was they score long-term treasury notes a lot lower. That was one of the modifications that that bill did. So in short, the bank was trying to make a little bit of margin by throwing everything in these long-dated bonds. Interest rates shot up. Deposits fell down. And then, honestly, when you're in a, a rush to the bank, like it doesn't matter how much capital you have. Right. Like, it wasn't going to matter. Yeah, any bank would have fallen apart. So it is concerning, though. It's showing that there is weakness in the banking market. But then the question is, does this mean we're insuring all deposits above 250K? We're not sure. But I will tell you, last thing is, all I know is that people are fleeing to the stronger banks, the too-big-to-fail banks. I think that will be probably the long-term effect. I know my FA is like, Carl, we don't think that's going to happen, but we're going to put some money in Morgan Stanley or uh, J.P. Morgan. So it's like... This is how this happens. It's like, I don't think this is going to happen, but just in case. You so. just define the moral hazard. Yeah, yeah. That's what it is. It's, it's the fact that why would you risk your money in a smaller bank because it helps the community versus, hey, I'm saving my money because this is going to get bailed out. That was the mistake that was made. Not that the, well, it was a mistake the bank failed, but how they insured it. Typically, FDIC is only going to insure up to $250,000, $250,000 of your deposit. Arbitrary number for what yeah. it's but worth. They, yeah. had, they had depositors in there that were huge depositors. And they took, there's a huge flight from smaller banks to larger banks now. But so back to your point of saying what Trump was trying to do was make it. See how she goes back to politics? Well, even she pretends I mean, like she doesn't. You, put the hat said, on. you said he was trying to roll back the regulation so as not to penalize, to give the smaller regional banks a chance to compete. But in doing that, then now he's, there's less oversight. Now we're seeing the risks that have been taken that have resulted in a banking, the collapses of these banks that were definitely not, I mean, maybe it was considered a regional bank. But so he rolls back the oversight. There's no risk management, in, or if there is, it's questionable. The bank fails, and now the government has to step in and say, okay, instead of the insurance policy of guaranteeing deposits up to $250,000, we are going to guarantee all the deposits. So now, what's the incentive? I, I mean, like, 
other banks seeing that are like, okay, well, we can make some risky things. If we fail, they're going to bail it out. Yeah. So you're, you're making my point. Right. So I'm saying rolling back the oversight to benefit the regional banks could end up being their demise because now people are going to, there's going to be a flight to the too big to fail banks. I mean, we, this could, is, we could make an argument about the rolling back the oversight, but the change that was made as of two weeks ago, if you had any more than $250,000 in deposit in a bank, you were uninsured. That's not the case that, that today, today, because that's the change that was occurred. Not that they have oversight on banks. The fact that they insured and paid out but that's for not the a change going value. forward. That was a change. That was something they stepped in and said in this instance. Two weeks yeah, ago, but it's in like this the, instant. It's that's like what the created once, yeah, has. Yeah, once you do it once, it's really hard to it's hard not to do say. it again. And the last thing we have to note is the VCs who promote this angelic Shangri-La that their technology is building. They all fled to the bank and were the first ones to get there. It wasn't, hey, we're all in this together. Like they promoted <laughs> this. Right. Oh my gosh, we're all going to die. And then afterwards, they like, got to bail this out. We're the engine yeah. for. It was. It was <laughs> not. It was. It was not mom and pop. They were pulling out. You know, from it's a wonderful life. Uh, they were pulling right. up their dollar thirty nine. Yeah, one Anderson last Horowitz and. Uh, one last all right, this is it. Because then we have to get onto the juice. One last dumb question. Um, or naive question. What percentage of deposited money are banks required to keep liquid? Wow. Like, I, do I, you know? Is there a no, ratio? Is there like a yeah, goal there, is, there is a number, and I believe the number is 5% that they have to have uh, versus the amount of money that they lend. I think like, that's the number. I'm not sure. How do deposits that are going to come in? Like, how but this is, is kind of the, the gist of it. It's like they consider. They consider treasuries near liquid things, but it's clear when treasuries are like, oh, I've got a five-year treasury that pays 0.2%, but now the interest rate is what it is, I don't know, two, three, four years later. Like, that's where they really got, I, I want to use polite what language, hurt, where it's just like, those those tre those securities aren't worth what they were worth a year ago, in some cases, six months ago. They were valued X, but now that the interest yeah. rate and the cost of money is so high, they're just worth less money because they're not producing any money. A bank looks at a deposit. When you have a deposit, that's an asset to you. It's a liability to the bank because they owe it to somebody else. Okay, a and that, loan is that was really the fourth theory that yeah. they got caught in the interest rate environment situation and like the Fed did this to them, but I left that one out because it feels like it's not fun. Well, not only is <laughs> yeah. it not fun, at the end of the day, you're a bank. You should be able like, No, they stunk. The SVB <laughs> management stunk. My buddy Benjamin Goodkind, hopefully he was listening to this at one point. He and worked there for a decade, but like the leadership messed up. Like that yeah. also is unquestionable. Okay, and the there's a, a fifth or a sixth element to this, <laughs> that this bank was notorious for its, uh, I'm, I'm going to get the words wrong, but diversity, equity, inclusion. They were oh, the wokest bank in the, in, the, in the left club. No, they were, and they weren't. They had their eye off the ball. Right. If you put your money in the bank, it's because it's secure, because they're because it's a safe place to put your money. If they're not paying any attention to your money, what good is the bank? So consequently, the uh, the Twitter verse or whatever it is, there is a question is about your confidence, <laughs> the confidence in lending institutions. So is your money safe in? Well, I usually Let ask the question, is it noise or is it news? And this is clearly news. It's not just oh, noise. Oh, it's absolutely news. And I don't think this is the end of the ripple effect that will continue. That's the other part. That's uh, absolutely the other part. And I'm glad I'm not the CEO of a 
bank right now because I don't think that that would be a lot of fun. Right. Um, except for, in Carl's point, the big banks who are probably seeing an influx of oh, yeah. deposits happening uh, instantly. Right? So um, that was an interesting uh, news event. They're usually not that colorful, but today's is definitely colorful. Yeah, just like three big banks failing you in know, the last two minor weeks. Minor details, yeah. billions of dollars. Feels the, like a hot the, topic. The two big to fail... That's what scares me. He said that I didn't even. I was yeah, like, oh boy. All of the legislation that was enacted because of too big to fail has, in fact, the self fulfilling prophecy. It's created bigger banks. Well, so let's. Yeah, we yeah, could go on forever. We could go on forever. <laughs> Do we, we want to? We could have had a, a, a strictly a podcast about the banking industry, but. Obviously, the reason we we're excited to have you here is because we do a lot of work with uh, independent sponsors and entrepreneurs through acquisition and just um, people who are out there living in the political uh, landscape on Main Street, like doing really neat things. And I think that your involvement in Workscape is pretty incredible, so we'd love to hear about that. But just, you know, why Carl decided I'm in banking, but you know what? I'm going to go invest in operating companies and take risk yeah. and see what that looks like instead of the comfort of collecting a paycheck from the PNCs of the world. Not to pick on them, but... And to kick it off, because I had to look this up, but just can you define for people who might not know, what is an independent sponsor? Yeah. And I feel like independent sponsor, it's been around for time immemorial. It's not like the, the terms in ETA and search fund, the rest, it all uh, it came into more prominence 12 years ago in Harvard. People have been buying businesses or going out and hustling since, I don't know, man started to, to walk on earth. And that's more of a biblical phrase, not men and women started walking on the earth. So point being is that we, uh, like, in short, a sponsor in its current iteration is – uh, someone who is looking to buy a portion or all of a business, or in some senses, maybe it's real estate, something that is some cash flowing entity. In most cases, they don't have the money. Like if you had a bunch of money in your pocket and could buy it from the bank, that to me is less a sponsor and more of a family office or some other uh, high net worth individual looking for an investment. A sponsor is more of actively acquiring and owning something, usually with a cohort of investors. And you can go into like funded searchers, self-funded searchers, family offices, accelerators. They've got a lot of offshoots, but usually what you see is someone holding business or thing five to seven years and hopefully like they usually use debt to acquire it they pay off most of the debt take a salary and then sell it to usually an IRR the 20 percentile or so um and again I'm, at this point I'm really talking pure play bit small business land sure um and then exiting at a certain point that's not exactly what I'm doing but that is what I describe as the vanilla um sponsor universe so what are you doing if that's not it what piece of the puzzle is different for the the Carl approach? The Carl approach. So, I mean... And actually, let's yeah. pause that for a second. Let's go back to the, when did you decide or what made you decide, you know what, that salary, I love it, the benefits are great, but I'm going to, I'm going to take risk, right? I'm going to go yeah. to the next level. Well, I mean, I, I did work at PNC, and I'll say this, PNC is a great place. Like, it's got a great culture. Like, if you're going to grow a business in, in a corporate setting in Pittsburgh, there's very few um, better areas or more durable companies than PNC. That said, it was like a bad relationship. It was me, not them. Um, I'm 
certainly neurotic and crazy and have certain expectations. But it was so. I mean, maybe to to step back my career a bit. Uh, <laughs> born in Atlanta, raised in Tampa. Uh, went to school in Boston because I want to get away from my parents, and the Jesuits told me to go there. Uh, married a Pittsburgh girl. Hey, came back Jesuits. Here. There's a theme here. Theme yep, Jesuits. Love the Jesuits. So it's great. I'm already on drink too. We've just gotten into the meat of this. Um, my kind of big takeaway was I started in software sales, didn't really like it because it was kind of a work hard, play hard environment. Um, I just, I was also about to marry a girl and I'm like, I'm not going to stay married to her if I stay in this environment. No offense to software sales if anyone's listening out there. Um, went to corporate finance. It was very, very slow. It was like the office, mundane. Like the show. Ringing. Yeah, the, yeah, the show, the office. I'm like, this isn't for me either. It's not as insane as uh, sales, and this is too slow. So like anyone who reaches a rut in their career, uh, you'll work you want to make, well, <laughs> even better, you want to make more money, you want to be promoted, you don't know what you want to do, you go to get an MBA. So I got an MBA, and then I continued to kick the can by becoming a consultant, first at a, a pharma company up near Moon Township, and then finally at, at PNC. And admittedly, my first year there was good. You're learning, you're comfortable, you're getting a good salary. I had a Office at two PNC with a big oak door. I could tell my parents I'm on the 31st floor. It was all very nice and, and cute. But really, after you, you kind of have that road to Damascus moment where you're in your late 20s, about to have my second child, and you're saying, "Do like you kind of feel it? You're like, pretty soon I'm not going to be able to have the flexibility to do something totally different." I could tell I just wasn't happy. There was something gnawing at me, and then that uh, begot a period of discernment where you're trying to figure out, "All right, what is the future going to hold?" and I wasn't thinking, oh, what is the spawn? And there's no clear-cut path. But then, another anecdote. Whenever you go to a nice country club, you inevitably see a person or persons there that are having a good time. It's 6 p.m., and you can tell they're three or four drinks deep. They're wearing nice clothes, a Peter Millar a sweater, or a nice dress. And, and Melissa, if you're listening, take notes. <laughs> Point being is that you're like, what does that person do? They're here all the time, not working. But like, clearly they're living a comfortable life. Amen. Inevitably that person owns and operates a small business. It's not doctors, lawyers are billing. Like, we're Real most estate pe people are working, right? Yeah, most people, professionals, and it's great. Like they're working your tail off, but there was this tranche of people. I mean, and this is when I was really in the depths of like, what the heck am I actually gonna do now? I've, I got my MBA, I've, I'm not consultant. I've used my last ace in the hole. Like there's gotta be something better. And then you kind of realize shortly, like, maybe there's this tranche. And then I start to dive into, and there's a, there's a lot of literature on what sponsors should do in ETA. And that's really the, the joy of me doing it now. Back in the day, there's no structure. If it's 1960 and you want to buy a business, like hopefully you've got the right cut of your jib and the banker likes your handshake and you know a family friend. Like now it's like there's an ecosystem that's defined and you can read about multiples and exactly what you're looking for in a business. So I kind of educate myself rapidly. So by the time, and this is, what is it, the 22nd? That's where I'm not looking at my, the time, time the, the date. So uh, March 21st, 2018, an important date in Carl Kubek history. My second child was born. And at PNC, they give you a very generous paternity leave. Thank you, PNC. Um, <laughs> and literally three days after that child was born, I, mean, I took the full, I don't know, it was like six, eight weeks or so, Three days later, I'm at a giant eagle in waterworks next to probably people sleeping on the couches, like working, like just starting to put the pieces in place to hunt for businesses and search. And then I was kind of off. So the point was I kind of realized this was the right path both financially, but it was kind of like a life calling of, yeah, I really, I'm one of those people that for better or worse kind of likes doing my own thing. Um, so this is fascinating. So the country club example, which 
I unfortunately have spent a lot of time in country clubs like that and have seen that person. Yeah. But that light bulb never went off. I mean, even as I'm sitting here today, I can now think back and like picture humans that I'm like, oh my God, that's exactly. What do exactly- those humans do? Yes. They so- own an HVAC business. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Then you realize later it's $6 million in free cash flow. <laughs> but did that, like, did you start asking questions about the guy in the sweater vest who was kicking back cocktails? Or yeah. was it the research? Or yeah, I'm, I'm competent at, at having a drink or two. And it's like, that's where some of my life skills and my life skills, I mean, I had an enjoyable time in college. Throughout my 20s, I really just, I kind of worked to live. But if anything, it really, I felt, I, I was able almost like Barbara Walters to pull info from people. It's still something I'm mildly good at. Okay. But at the, I'd have these conversations with people that, it's not to say I looked up to, but it's like, what is going on here? Like, what is this person doing? Like, sure. And inevitably, at first, like, oh, everyone's just inherited money, et cetera. But then you realize there's a little bit more nuance than that. Um, so that was the first piece. And then once I started to pull that together, there was some coursework at CMU. Not really coursework, but some things, like little threads of this ETA universe, this search fund universe. Yeah, because you kind of glossed over that the MBA was at Carnegie Mellon. Right. Here's the thing about CMU people. Like, there's tranches of grad schools, and you go to Pittsburgh, you're like, oh, you went to Tepper. That's fantastic. Like, Tepper's good. I love Tepper. Uh, I'm sure they're, they're not going to be happy about this, but it's the 10th to 15th best grad school in the country. Like, there's kind of Harvard, there's Stanford, there's kind of a few upper echelon. Then there's a second tranche where I'd even put schools like UNC, Booth, Haas, et cetera. And Tepper is the third tranche. Really, coming from Boston, it allowed me You're to You're still have- in, like, the top 15 in the country, though, so that's, like... Probably the top 1% of No, it's a schools. great school, but I hate those people that's like, I went to Tepper. It's like, there needs to be a moment of silence and everyone genuflects. Like, it's it's fine. It's we actually, this is a, a quick diversion. Kelsey, <laughs> where did your husband get Also, for the Tepper, I want to shout out to uh, the Swartz Center, which did a lot for me. Dave Mawinney was fantastic over there. Uh, went care. The, so, so what he's saying is... But I'm, I can my, say this. It's like me making fun of Florida. My WVU is like I picked it up at Walmart. Hey, well, undergrad. My this undergrad is, this, isn't even I, a conversation. All I have is my undergrad, but this is a true story. We were on a property tour. We, we were literally on it's a property true. tour, to your point about the moment of silence. And we're trying to sell a very substantial asset. And as we're walking through, you know, you always want to qualify to like, does this person even have like the wherewithal to do this? And he literally said out loud, well, I went to Carnegie Mellon for my oh. MBA. And we were like, Audible so ground. that means that you're <laughs> like capable of pulling this off? It was pretty hysterical. I was one of the first. So I talked to hundreds of business owners. And one of the first ones, I went out to, I don't know if it was Presto or Prospect PA, someplace in Lord knows where in western Pennsylvania. And I remember it was going really well until I mentioned I went to business school. And like really once you start talking to real small business owners that do the, the work, they're like, that's a negative. That yeah, they're a, like, whoa. They're like, oh, my gosh. I kind of liked you as a person, but you want to, oh, you're one of those people. So pretty quickly I had to – that was not part of my pitch when I would, like, come in the business and, like, look at this confidence man that thinks he can run this. Um, I never mentioned the MBA. It was a detriment, not a positive. But it, it provides a lot. Uh, it really does if you're going down a certain route. My sister is going to Northwestern right now. Colleen is – needs that and it's going to help elevate her in her corporate career. But it for what g- I ended up doing, it gives you a spectac- spectacular view of the playing field. And that's what it does. That's pretty much but the of it. What's interesting, so I obviously sidebarred to the Carnegie Mellon thing, but then you just subtly threw in there, you talked to a couple hundred business owners. 
So yeah. your first investment wasn't like, oh, I want to go buy this company. I'm going to go buy it. You talked to a right? Like, yeah, we sent twenty eight thousand emails out, and you what? Like, the key is you 28, learn twenty eight thousand. You learn how to learn. Like, I really wish you just hadn't said that number to him. <laughs> come on, let's go, team. But you learn how to do automated emails, and this is where again I'm to see him use credit. Uh, the Schwartz Center it was a cohort of people searching together, one of which Andrew Ellerhorst. Lots of name dropping here, just so that people, uh, I'll, I'll tag them later on LinkedIn. We like that. We're still looking up Road to Damascus, by the way. <laughs> we, uh, so it's New Testament. Uh, so. I was going to say, you might have to open the Bible that you probably haven't opened in a while. So Andrew, I got it. <laughs> but you learn how to do automated email campaigns, and like that's a whole different thing, but like... So my theory of buying a business and actually acquiring it's similar to presidents, and we're not talking politics, um, but the presidential campaign theory is it by running a campaign, setting it up, being successful, putting in the infrastructure, getting into the White House is a precondition of becoming president. That shows that you are qualified for being a president, and you know, we don't have to talk about the ins and outs of that. But I do feel that way about buying a small business. Like if you can put the things in place that get you to find a business – that is a very credible first step in, in actually being able to operate it. But the point is I learned how to do an automated email campaign with a little bit of help from my friends, as Joe Cocker would say. And then once that was in place, you just start to learn. I can give you, I've got tactical advice of first call, second call, third call, but you really start to turn this into an assembly line while at the same time retaining some humanity. Um, would but, you be willing to take Alyssa, who's new to our team, for lunch and talk about this exact experience? Because this yeah. is like <laughs> perfection, right? And I will, and again, I, I don't know everything. I only know 98% of things. Uh, but no, I, I'm more than happy to, but it really isn't that difficult. That hindered me. I would be at 100 if it wasn't for those. No, yeah, if it Tepper wasn't for was that. Um, but the point was, you make a call, and now I'm talking to tactics. You have a few calls, and eventually, I feel like you guys will like this. So the first call is, it's amazing, you pick up the phone and talk to someone who indicates a smidge of interest on an email, cold email, and they'll tell you everything. Like, you just let them talk. You don't interrupt. You don't say, what's your EBITDA and what's uh, the, the cage or growth on your top line revenue? You just say, oh, it seems like you have a really nice business. Yes. Because in most cases, the business is who they are and people like talking about themselves. So they will go on and on and on. And then you can do some nice, cute little things to ascertain value. How about that for an SAT word? Uh, <laughs> one is like how many people they have. If it's a blue collar business, usually the number is a quarter million dollars per person in revenue. So you're saying, I've got 40 workers down in, I don't know, Connellsville. You're like 40 workers times 250K, you start to back into numbers to see if it's big enough to be worth your time. White collar workers is probably closer to like 500K a worker, but you're getting information even though they're not telling you and you're just letting them go on. I mean, they'll talk about, I heard someone talk about their marital issues. Like this is like 20 minutes into a cold call. So it's... It, then after that, the second call is you let them dive a little bit deeper, and then at the end you're like, "Would you be? I want to learn more, but I really I feel bad hearing all this without signing an NDA. Would would that would that make you comfortable? Of course they'll sign it. And then the third time is when you have you start to direct the conversation more, and hopefully they if they have signed the NDA, you can they'll send you financials afterwards. But yeah, I, I wouldn't say I went talked to hundreds of business owners about their financials, but um, lo and behold, it was like I'd probably say there was two to three dozen folks I've got true financials from. And from there, I probably made, uh, I won't count broker-led deals, but I probably made six to eight IOIs, which is just a piece of paper saying, will you take this? What's um, IOIs stand for? Indication of interest. Okay. I don't know if these terms are uh, the similar in real estate, but. They are not similar in real estate, which is one of the things that we kind of 
not fight, but it's a unique vernacular between our private equity clients and our independent sponsor clients and then the real estate world because the IOI does not really happen in the real estate space. Yeah. But it's such like a normal thing in your world that people talk about it. So I just wanted the audience to know what IOI stood for. And the truth is it's nothing more than a fancy piece of paper with a number on it. It's it's a, it's a precursor to an LOI essentially. Exactly. And basically more than anything you do it because it's awkward to be like, Michael, will you take seven million for your business? Because it's just weird. It's just like here's an official thing made on an eight by eleven. So it's piece like the paper. do you like me check yes no, maybe and then yeah. if yes. And like, it's almost always maybe or no. Love note. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or no. <laughs> and then it begets a conversation. Then the LOI is much more fulsome where you can uh, you can start to hammer out details. But it's a good precursor. So so was Workscape, trying to bring it back to yeah. the great swag that showed up today, was that the first investment on the post, um, you know, PNC life? It was. I and mean, it won't be the last one, but there's some things we do different than the typical search. I'm a big subscriber to permanent capital, basically, like running it like a true family-led small business. Okay. And some folks, they do five to seven years and flip. Private equity, it's like, let's slash and burn everything. That isn't something that can generate like revenue directly. Um, and then there's also, I'd say, people that are in between. There's the bolt-ons where it's like, join this big organization, eventually you melt away. Kind of like... What was free markets with uh, Ariba and SAP? Like it's kind of like we'll bring you on, and then eventually you'll just get subsumed by this larger entity. So I say all this because my pitch was one: I want to own this forever, which appealed to a certain tranche of business owners. Two: I want to retain the core DNA of your company. And if anything, and Workscape proves this, we want to keep this old leadership with us as long as possible. Because there's a reason we want to buy this because like you guys have you had something figured out. Yeah. But here's the third thing is like you get the check that you deserve. If a seller is selling a business, they will always get the most money from private equity that's doing a roll up. But you know what? Everything that you built is going to turn into dust. It's going to be kind of Berlin in 1945 afterwards. Everything's going to be finished. So it's like there will be no shingle. There'll be no rebuilding. Like this is it. And you know what? You absolutely deserve to do that. I'm, I'm not casting aspersions. But sure. my play was, hey, there is another route. In many cases, a lot of these owners want to do what's right. Both, I wouldn't say what's right for their employees, but they want their employees to stay strong. They like the shingle. They like the culture that they've built. And that was something I was catering towards specifically. Just because, and from a financial investor standpoint, Michael, you have $100. You could make, say, 27% on that for five years. Nice, compounded. Or you can make 18 to 20% for 25 years. I mean, at first you're like, oh, those five years, you're being it substantially. But then when you go back into the 5% market returns afterwards, it quickly, the math favors the long-term long -term hold. You know, was it hard to, because as you mentioned, it's a situation like the sponsor of the ETA is, it's not like you just have a checkbook where you can walk out and just write your own check. Mm -hmm. So you're bringing along partners and yeah. investors and is your story that, hey, I want to do this long term. I don't want to do the five to seven year flip thing. Is it a harder story to tell to the investors, not even to the business owner? Because I think a business owner, like, yeah. great, this guy's in it. He wants to be involved for a long time. But the investors are like, when do I get my money back? And there is a, no, it's a great question. There is now a cohort of people where you go to these places at the Polsky Center at the University of Chicago and searchers mingle with investors, but everyone knows exactly the criteria. The framework is, all right, five to seven years, does it have these numbers, like return? When am I going to get out? And it doesn't fit into that. So that pool of liquidity is no longer there. 
Um, so really what you're looking for, and, some, and really the truth is most of our money came from friends and family, but there were some strategic outside investors who were in uh, private equity uh, entities locally and a few outside of the, the local geography. So they kind of understood what we were doing. But the truth is we're just trying to turn a great 20th century business into a great 21st century business. And again, there's no easy answer. It's just like every small business person will tell you this. It's just every day you get 1% better. And we have, uh, we've made large uh, transactions. We've acquired a competitor, acquired a piece of property, developed it. Hopefully we'll be moving in soon, hence the, uh, the water bottles. But it's, most of it is just mundane, like, hey, we figured out how to eliminate a step on our typical operational process. Like that's how you really, uh, it's in the, what's it, the... Secrets in the sauce, something yeah. like that. It's um, it's interesting because you said you know one percent better every day, but yet they had already had the secret sauce. So do you True. think? And I'm I'm not picking out. I I'm not trying to like pick on the workscape team that was there. Just more in general, is it that that you think that they've lost the fire, or do you think that it's um, they just don't know what they don't know. So the independent sponsor is bringing just a level of expertise that was not there in, or a combination of both. I don't want to – so first off, the owners, Don and Dave, are like my Dutch aunt and Dutch uncle. And it's just think about you're in this position where for decades you've been making a significant amount of money. I mean just w- whatever it might be. And we're not talking about, oh, I made 200 grand this year, not 180. Like they're ma- you're making significant means. You've got more than enough money to, to live out your retirement dreams and then some. If anything, you're kind of figuring out, oh, where's this going afterwards? The point is that, okay, if I'm making this money each year, why do I want to go from working 60-hour weeks to 85-hour weeks to get a little bit better? So it's like do I want to invest in infrastructure and maybe not make this same number I'm used to for another five years so I can get even bigger? The question is, for what purpose? Like right. We've got more than enough. And you see this with all businesses, kind of. Really up to that twenty to thirty million dollar range in revenue, you can be a big hustle. You can just like have, and this is what was a husband and wife and some awesome people underneath, and just work your tail off. But really, what I'm trying to, uh, and my wife and I, who are kind of our uh, kind of the co-lead owners, we also have Jordan Leach and, and his wife. We're between the two of us, uh, two couples. We're kind of the super majority here. We uh, like our focus is how do we turn a $20 million business per se to $100 million. And again, I'm just using high-level yeah. terms, but it's like, how do you go from level one of the pyramid to level two? And frankly, it's just better processes, better systems. And this is the the mundane 1% items. Uh, but it certainly takes different layers. So we did bring on a, a new CEO, Ginny, who uh, is a woman about town, a CFO, Abby, who's great. Um, Dave, the former owner, is our head of sales. He's uh, this point, he's, he and I are just like work buddies, but he's a trans, he's a well-known character in the community. And he loves seeing the business that he founded out of his garage. Basically, but now he all, the only thing he has to do is the thing that he loves. Yeah, if anything, we said, what do you want? He's like a pitcher on a pitch count. Like, all right, now you only have to pitch 70 pitches. And like, you don't have to do anything else. Or in basketball, it's load management, whatever the sport, <laughs> sport analogy right. you want to use. And uh, I think he's having a really good time. Uh, he, he tells me that at least. But also his wife's working like a maniac at the church. So he's just going home to an empty house and Don's not going to let him do that. So the point <laughs> is is that we kind of put this infrastructure in place to continue to grow. And potentially might happen with other product sets because right now we're kind of tied into the Western PA market uh, in West Virginia. And in the future, it's like, do we sell more products in here? 
and or do we expand geographies? And that's kind of the fun part of it. And that's where you can think long term. If I had just, we bought this business July 7th, 2019, if that means we're coming pretty close to five years. If we had a five year hold, it's like we got to figure out how to get out of this whole thing. But now it's like, no, if anything, we're doubling, tripling down. A so. five year hold with a global pandemic. True. A year in. Yeah, buying an office furniture business during a global <laughs> pandemic was not fun. <laughs> Friends, family, my parents was like, is everything okay, Carl? Like, there's someone passed away. It's like, it's fine. And, like, it was partly we did have a few great customers. Michael also loved this part. It was also government aid, PPP and ERC. Uh, helped us a lot, and it helped everyone. So a lot of these zombie companies could sustain a little bit longer. We weren't a zombie company, but that also ameliorated the, uh, the pain for our business. But if anything, we did a lot of good stuff during the pandemic. And, again, I, I'm not pointing fingers, but... All the hard work we did during the pandemic paid off because when it got over, we bought a competitor. We kind of shot out and we're moving into this. Like We could have just sat on our, our butts and drank whatever bourbon we're drinking yeah. right now, which is pretty good. I it know. is actually very good bourbon. Um, but we didn't. Like We just did a lot of stupid, annoying crap that was vitally important. So it uh, that really put us in the right footing. So once – and times are really busy right now, surprisingly, and – can talk about that or not talk about that, but it allowed us to capitalize when opportunity arose. And is so Workscape obviously was the first investment, and you've dabbled in a couple other things. Yeah. Like, what's the goal? Like, is the goal to have a company, to have five companies? I would always think three to five companies. I mean, I am so knee deep in Workscape, it's I'm like uh, receding hairline deep. But in the future, like, my goal is to not, like, be working in the trenches for another business. And ideally, it's two, three, four other ones. It's working in a more governance way, kind of giving people the tools to succeed. Um, and every annoying searcher or permanent capital person will say, I want to be the next Berkshire. Like, I am not being highfalutin, but trying to find really good businesses that can endure and just having the right operators running them. Like, and it, it sounds unique, but this... All it does is take time and effort. It's not you don't need to be brilliant to do that. So that would be the goal in my mind. You know, as you as you've explained yeah. how you how you invested in these companies, there seems to be a, an emphasis on not just the numbers or the the bricks and sticks of it, but there's a cultural aspect of it that yeah strikes me as that's part of what you're purchasing. Not I don't know whether you want to call it goodwill, but just the yeah yeah the way these companies feel. You described them a lot differently than, let's just say, certain private equity companies. Yeah. It's a three and a half X, a one and a half a million EBITDA. There you know. is something that is just more material to it. Is yeah. that how you would evaluate something as you're going forward? Yeah, durable long-term business. Because here's the thing. Right now, like the other advantage we had with Workscape, most even sponsors – wouldn't look at it because it doesn't have recurring revenue. It doesn't have uh, any over. I mean, it's the worst bankable business on earth. <laughs> we've got no assets. We've got no recurring revenue. We're just, in many cases, it's like people would shudder at the balance sheet. But at the same time, there's all these elements where you peel a level deeper and you've got specific certain employees are just both devoted and awesome. They're just the best at what they do. There's this culture of like kind of, all for one and one for all. And we have a really generous profit sharing program that helps um, support the, these ethos as well. But you're absolutely right, Michael. It's to me, it's finding stuff that is a durable company. Uh, what's the Talib phrase? Anti-fragile businesses. So even when the pandemic hits and like no one can, our product is illegal to to move into. Like we're still 
humming along, maybe not soaring, but just moving along. So, so that's really what we, we acquired more than anything else. But again, that also, admittedly, I felt like we got it at a very fair value compared to the market. So it, uh, it wasn't something like we were taking advantage of, but it was something where both Don and Dave and myself and Susanna and Jordan and Kristen were all very happy with. Of the company, uh, let's take Workscape, Workscape in particular, what was your attrition rate of the employees that you that would have transferred at the sale? So we had two people leave, though admittedly, uh, one was, uh, I won't name names, he was a good guy, and he already accepted the offer. Like, it was my first day, and Don, our old owner, was like, Carl, well, you wanted to sit in the chair. Like, and he Not comes in, and he's like, sorry, Carl, about this. Then someone else kind of raked me over the coals for a raise, and it was like, I kind of got, a, like, body blows initially. But it, it wasn't, we didn't have any true attrition other than, one person who left that day and was leaving that day otherwise. Someone else left. And the people that did leave three, six months afterwards, it was the typical rate. Like if yeah. you did kind of a diagram of each month, XYZ people leave, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. Um, and it speaks to like, one, we create a transition where both Don and Dave were there for a period of time. Then after nine months, Don kind of backed away and Dave's still there now. And that helped tremendously. Yeah, that's so. fantastic. No, and I, I, of course, I'm a natural salesman, so I'm spinning rainbows and roses. I mean, look, I've receding hairline. I've lost my eyesight. Like, I've totally been beat up by this process. But as you can tell, I, it animates me. Yeah, you love it. Oh, it's great. It's clear. So when you are assessing a potential acquisition and you're, you're looking at the business and you obviously have some kind of emotional connection, you see longevity there, but then you talked about is there a process improvement here? Is there a way that um, we can increase the capacity of this somehow to grow the business once we do acquire it? Like, how do you assess that? And how do you, how do you put, being that it's a new business that you're learning from the current operator, how, what does your process look like to dig a layer deeper thinking like, okay, once I acquire this, here's yeah. the capital and the time and the energy that will need to be invested in X, Y, and Z to make it more efficient in order to make it more sustainable and profitable long term. Yeah, two things uh, popped to mind, Paige. One is like any business owner that especially it's usually the people that have owned a company for 15, 25 years will be like, uh, we just need someone smarter than me to run it. This thing will skyrocket. It's like run away from that. That guy is lying to you. He thinks he knows everything, and like he absolutely doesn't believe someone who's never been in the space before is going to run this better than That's he or interesting. She. Sprint. There's there's a few uh, tales of tape, but um, that person, he or she, probably uh, knows what a total stress this is, and they're prob there's probably some reason they're leaving. So initially, like when you someone's talking to you. One of my key criteria is, and this is a big box, like why are they leaving? Oh, it feels like it's about time. Like. And maybe like five to fifteen percent of the time, that's right. But usually, something terrible is about to happen with uh, the business. Sort of Damocles, for using another fancy term. <laughs> There's just something just waiting to like end the business's existence, or it's something personal. And I know like uh, there was a very real reason with Workscape why that that occurred. And it's like this totally aligns, and like I know why they're leaving, and that gives gives me a lot of confidence that this is durable. But then to your the second point, Paige. 
don't you don't walk in with preconceived notions. You can have some theses and ideas, but these now with the business school, Carl, like he can't step in and say, "All right, I've like I, I know what's going on here." Like stand aside, people. You just have to sit there for six to nine months and just listen and just let the thing operate. Because what's the worst that's going to happen? It just keeps spitting out money. Yeah. So you you're not when you're acquiring them, you're acquiring them based on as like in place income revenue. Correct. You're not thinking like, okay, here's the value I could add and then what this could become. And for our investors, like usually you always do for sponsors, worst case scenario, base case, best case. And it's funny. Some of these searches will be like, worst case, this thing grows 12%. Best case, maybe it it doubles in four years. Like they put these crazy assumptions because then you can back into the math and get more equity and do evil stuff. Um, Again, I'm... I'm, I'm generalizing. Sure. But what I'm trying to say is that for our base case scenario, um, I basically baked in a 0% growth rate, which during the pandemic was, was way Genius. too much. <laughs> that was the best case scenario. Yeah, that was the best case scenario. <laughs> but that's where you have to realize pretty quickly that you just have to be humble about it. And especially the businesses we're buying, they're not sexy. Like, I was looking at everything from like meat wholesalers, ladder manufacturers, like stuff that isn't like meat wholesalers. That's definitely sexy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's required and it's not going anywhere. Yeah, exactly. It's durable stuff. I mean, that's why we talk about SVB and technology. Like anything that touched on a code, it's like run away from because that is a fickle thing that's going to. Sure. Yeah. I, I love the statement of we want to be 1% better than we were before. When you think about it, it's a great statement. But it's an incredible pace. Oh, yeah. No, it is. Compounds. Okay. So after, after a period of time, it's almost getting people used to always trying to be better. Have you found that that's something that gets received? James Clear, baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I, so my thing is one of my favorite, biz, like, it's not even a business book, but it's just almost a managerial book. And everyone out there should read it, all, all 400 of you listening right now. Um, <laughs> that would we, be a win. That, would that be a win? What numbers are we talking about? No, that about? would be a win. We're not giving uh, the no, bank I guy numbers. I, I, no, I that would be a win. Was, that was good. <laughs> so, we'll send you an NDA afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to ask Paige who this person is. Do you know who Bill Walsh is? Yes. What? Oh. You're not Bill supposed Walsh. to. I can't. This is who wants to be a millionaire. How much money do I have no, in my wallet? I mean, I'm not, a phone no. friend. Yeah, no. I, so he was, and I, again, I was just being a jerk by putting me on the spot, but he was a, a famous uh, coach for the 49ers diet. I mean, Michael, no, you give me your description of Bill Walsh. Bill Walsh was the innovator of the West Coast offense. He was the coach of the 49ers during the heyday when they won three straight, three straight or three Super Bowl titles yeah. within the late 80s. He was the coach of the day with a local uh, Pittsburgh boy playing yeah. quarterback. Yeah. Uh, Pittsburgh boy and a uh, Youngstown, Ohio owner, Eddie DeBartolo. Yeah. 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 And um mall guy. Th- he was All probably one of the most innovative football coaches ever in an era of innovative football coaches. He changed the game completely. And the thing with him is like, and he wrote this unbelievable book um, called The Score Takes Care of Itself. Like, it really is like way better than it has any right to be. And the whole whole point is that like, and I quote this time and again, and there's this one line that I would butcher. But in short, it's like it's a permutation of Bill Belichick's like trust the process. But it's basically saying like you do good work each day and eventually the score will take care of itself. And some people would say, oh, it's like an anti-competitive message. Like, no, you want to kill the competition. But especially for the way I view it and really 
how I think Workscape operates. It's like if we do really good work, like it's it'll show, it'll manifest itself. And the pandemic was a great description. So when we talk about how could you get one percent better each day, it's like you can't even view it that way. It's like just keep doing really good work, and like you don't even conceptualize like, oh, we're going to increase productivity by X Y Z percent. You buy into what your culture is. Yeah, it's it's just literally. That's what it is. It's, it's, like, it's, it's, it's so simple. Small changes every, not small changes every day, but taking yeah, And you're thinking about the process. You're right. like, why am I doing and this? And also right focusing now. on what you're doing, not necessarily thinking about something down the road that you're never going to understand <clears throat> why it is because there's too many variables that are going to change it. This is what I do. This is what our, our, our entity is at this point in time, and I'm going to continue to go. So I feel like you might have already answered it, but as we wrap up here, um, and actually before we get to that question, we got to talk about the bourbon because I realize that's always part of the show. We so, should talk about real estate too, right? No, I don't think we have enough time to talk right. about real estate. Yeah. But um, <laughs> the bourbon. <laughs> part yeah, two you're of not. Oh, I, I, Are you going to do your eight. Vanna White? Like, yeah, I'm going to do the Vanna White. I was but say, in order usually... to do the Vanna White. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Sorry, Paige. Hey, do I, you. I, I, you. Do you. Guttural instinct from the crowd because, oh. Doing me, you know. God help us. <laughs> I, I hope I haven't started anything, but. I'm sorry okay, I So started. we're drinking a Long Branch bourbon, which seems to be a wild turkey product. I'm not necessarily uh, 100% up to speed on what this particular uh, <laughs> bourbon is. But I thought it could be sorry, but the combo. Wild turkey. And the Trump hat is it. Oak and Texas <laughs> mesquite charcoal refined. And I give it a A. Uh, I give it an A+. Plus. Yeah, I give it a big A. I haven't had bourbon in a long time, and I can feel the redness in my face. Me too. I'm sorry. Is, is that a good thing? I don't yeah. know. I think I just... I thought it was my hat. But that... My That's embarrassment okay. for you. No, it's the Mike, you know what you need to do is the Trump two thumbs up for uh, the, I should stop. I, I might have, I'm like, going to get out of brought, I might even, you know. if, if things go better. I was really better, hoping you would have put a, a copy like the Bible I'm gonna, in there. I'm going to go into the YMCA. He's got the shimmy going on. The, the, the Trump shimmy. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. All right. Please do the YMCA dance. I will pay so much. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. Oh to you 40 people at home. That was the number that I was giving out. No, that so that was a fantastic. Re- Actually, you picked a good day to be here for the bourbon, and the topic du jour was interesting. Yeah. But um, I feel like you might have already answered it. But what is your trade secret? Also, trade secret. I feel like I hate to insult the six people around me. We need to do something about the capitalization of the letters. It feels zodiac killerish, and I get it's totem real estate. Man. Yeah. Some every time you open the podcast, like oh good god, what am I looking at? Like, like it gets like a ransom note. Yeah, like. no, it does look like that. There's newspaper clippings. Just this I say awesome. we. Well, I came up with it, so that makes sense. But I get the spirit. It's it's cute once you learn it, but it takes a while to be like, what am I looking at? Why is this? Yeah. You know, you also, are you are the Dennis Miller of, of the Totem Podcast because you have these arcane references that I guarantee you. Page does not get, and most of them slip by him. <laughs> but I love it. It's been great. It's been uh, great. But he didn't tell us his trade secret. Uh, so how about this for Arcane Reference? So there's this great writer named Robert Caro. He wrote a series of books about LBJ. 
And I doubt anyone out there, maybe other than, I, I do have an aunt, Aunt Kathy, who loves <laughs> LBJ because she's from Austin. Um, but LBJ, like basically the whole story was like LBJ kind of willed himself into success. And whether it was new or not, that's not here nor there. But kind of my always thought when I was searching for a business, imagine you, you drop everything. You've got two kids and a family that looks on like you, you probably should be successful. You've gone to good schools and now you're doing nothing. But I had this intrinsic belief, and I guess you could call it the trade secret, that like if you just continue to like work as hard as you possibly possibly can at like every possible moment, like something good will happen. And especially when you search for a business, there's just a mental tax. And there's a reason most searchers, probably 70 to 80% don't find a business. It's just, it's a mentally torturous process. But like, I'd say my trade secret was just like, I just, I'm going to find something. It's like, it is, it's the epitome of faith. Like this is going to happen. And again, I ended up finding Workscape because, um, my financial advisor's next door neighbor was, well, she was taking out the garbage and her next door neighbor said, oh, son, this thing fell through. I don't know what I'm going to do now. It's like, you should talk to Carl because she remembered I was like living and dying with this. But the point is that like you can't, that's how you generate serendipity is just by completely like throwing yourself all in. That so is, that's the trade secret. That's fantastic. I had a, when I was starting my career, somebody said to me, luck is uh, just being prepared when opportunity arises, mm-hmm. which is very similar to your, you got to be all in and good things will happen. So this was awesome. This is good. I mean, this was so good. We are definitely... This was fantastic. We didn't even talk about the real estate book. We are definitely going to bring you back and talk real estate and only talk real estate. No politics (laughs) and no independent sponsor. Yeah, I got that. But thank you. References. Episode 21 in the books. Fantastic. I am.